But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and from how childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Acts 26, 9 through 20. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to, to Damascus with the authority and, and commission of the, chief, of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick back, back against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, who, who you, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appear, appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, um, as we now come to your word, um, we, we ask that you will, um, you'll do some serious business with us. We, uh, we need to speak of deep things, sober things, serious things. But we speak of these things... Um, 
before you, um, in your presence, uh, trusting that you're here, that you have not left us alone, but that every single thing that you say in Scripture, you back up with your own power. And so uh, some of us, we come at risk of having a form of godliness but denying its power, and we don't want that. We need your power. We need you to work. We need you to make yourself clear, visible to us. We need you to do in us what you did in Saul, turning him into the Apostle Paul. Uh, so will you do that? Will you grant us to just to be more than an exchange of ideas? But will you grant us to receive you by faith? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, friends, please be seated. And it's helpful if you turn back to page 9. We're continuing our series in uh, this letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. It's his second letter to Timothy. And we're only going to get through half of that reading. We'll save um, the... Um, the second half for next week. Um, and here's what we need to do. We need to take a long, hard look at the concept of evil today. And uh, more specifically, um, we need to consider the idea of evil, not just out there, um, but in here, in the church, in our own hearts. Um, here's real briefly why. I mean, it, it's addressed in the reading, so that's why we're going to look at it. But but here's the deal. Evil, friends, um, is, uh, is real. It is present within the church, and it is shockingly easy to ignore it. Um, man, I feel old. 20 years ago, I was in college. And, um, and, and 20 years ago, when I was in college, it was really vogue to kind of deny the existence of e evil. Uh, and so we would th say different things. We would say that uh, evil is just kind of a cultural... Uh, construct. Uh, sometimes we would say that it's just a matter of perspective. It means different things in different contexts, things like that. Um, sometimes we would say that it is a tool of the powerful to coerce the weak. Um, and, and back then, it was kind of easy to save those things. Um, it was the late 1990s. Uh, we were fairly comfortable. Uh, America was rich and powerful, confident, uh, and therefore e evil was easy to ignore or deny, it was kind of convenient to as well. However, um, it seems to me that, that it's a different context 20 years later for a variety of reasons. 9-11, um, a kind of continuous war uh, has chipped away at the uh, ease of ignoring the concept of evil. Um, and I think today there's, you can tell me if you think that I'm wrong about this or, or right, you can say either, I suppose. Um, but there seems to be a kind of continual trauma that we experience today. Um, we hate each other surprisingly powerfully. Um, and there's violence around us. And it seems to me that even if you don't want to use the word evil, there's a kind of nameless fear that just hovers about us in a way that's harder to ignore than it might have been used to be. Now, that's in general and too vague for today. 
the passage wants us to look not just at evil out there someplace, but in here, and more specifically, in here, in the church and in our own hearts. And the reason is, the reason this is so important, is that Christians are often desperately naive and desperately ignorant, and therefore vulnerable to evil, particularly within the church and within our own hearts. Um, that's part of what Paul's addressing. So Paul is addressing um, this church in Ephesus that was under threat from within. Look at verse 6. Um, Paul, the author, describes this group of uh, false teachers, wicked men, who are infiltrating the church. Uh, and it says they creep into households. That word households may refer to the homes where uh, congregations were hosted. They creep into households and capture weak women. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, we, um, was, what's Paul talking about here, particularly weak, weak women? Because that sounds troublesome, doesn't it? Um, here's what uh, author, Bible teacher uh, Amy Bird writes. She wrote a whole book about this. Uh, this expression, quote, this expression, weak women, insults us. Paul isn't soft-pedaling the issue here, and he's not being chauvinistic. He's not saying that men are never gullible. He is saying that a particular type of immature woman in that church was being targeted by false teachers looking to manipulate and infect households. And then Amy Bird goes on to argue that um, part of the reason was that uh, these women were st of strategic importance to the church, and so they were under particular target for exploitation. Now, part of what Paul's saying here is he's addressing a particular church that had a particular vulnerability, and he's addressing the leadership in saying, um, Timothy and church at Ephesus, do not be gullible. Do not be taken in by these false teachers. And that's what we need to learn today. Emmanuel, here, here's, here's what we learned. Don't be gullible about evil. Put differently, this reading teaches us to anticipate and avoid and resist evil within the church, within our own hearts, and that's the only way that we're gonna be useful to God and to the city for the long haul. So. Two questions. How do we identify evil, particularly within the church? Number two, how do we resist it? Okay, first of all, how do we identify evil? Take a look at verse one. Uh, remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He is in prison. He's waiting to be executed. This is the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he wants Timothy and the leadership of the church to have their eyes wide open. And he says this, verse one. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, and they note this list of vice, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, take a breath, <sighs> lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Okay, <clears throat> if you want to identify evil, you got to understand three things. Evil's heart, evil's disguise, and evil's appeal. First of all, uh, evil's heart. Look at those list of vices. There's a bunch there, and it's a little overwhelming, is it not? 
It's kind of hard even to say the list in one breath. There's so much there. But notice the first vice and notice the last vice. The first vice is, do you see it? Lovers of self. The last vice is not lovers of God. That's the key. All through scripture, love of self causes all sorts of evil. Now, when we say that, we are not talking about healthy self-esteem. That's something different. Um, let me say it differently. I'll rephrase it. When I prefer myself above everything else, particularly when I prefer myself above God, I will end up exhibiting all kinds of vices in this list. Now, um, that may sound a bit crazy, so let me try to explain it in a little bit of a roundabout way, okay? Stay with me. Um, when you love somebody, when you love somebody, when you really love somebody, um, you will tend to love things that that person loves. Uh, I'll, I've used this illustration before. Uh, 22 years ago, I met my wife, Amber. Um, I did not like classical music. She did. Um, as I fell in love with Amber, I also found myself starting to like classical music. There's a kind of synchronization that happens when you really love somebody, you will tend to at least have a new interest in the things that that person has interest in. Um, another example, um, uh, several years ago, I think Caleb, my oldest son, was like four. I was gonna go rent a car. He really liked cars, uh, and we never, we never owned one that he remembers, and so he asked me, he said, Daddy, can you, um, can you pick up a Maserati? Um, and uh, I didn't even know what a Maserati was, um, and I, I brought home a Prius, <laughs> which is different, it appears. Um, I, you know, Maseratis were not on my, you know, radar. Um, ends up, they're really great. There's a sharing that occurs, a sharing of interest. That's a story about. There's a, a sharing of interest when you really love somebody, you will tend to love what they love when it's healthy. Now, apply that to God. When you love God, and when you love God above everything else, um, you will tend to love the things that God loves. Well, what does God love? God loves everything that is good and true and beautiful. His love is huge. In fact, in a remarkable way, his love in, can include and does include even his enemies. Love God and your capacity to love everything will balloon and expand. But then turn it on its head. What if I don't love God? What if I hate God? What if, actually, it's not that I hate God, that's not the way I think of it, but rather I love myself and I prefer myself over everything else. Then the whole thing will start working backwards. The more I prefer myself over everything else, the smaller my capacity to love will be. It'll just start to contract and narrow down in on itself. And ultimately, I'll find that I only really love things that I think are useful to me. Now keep that in mind and go back to verse two. If I prefer myself over everything else, will I end up being a lover of money? Well, of course I will, because it lets me get stuff I like. We'll keep going. Will I be proud and arrogant? Well, sure, because what I'll do is I'll look at myself, I'll find the things I like about myself, and I'll exaggerate them. I'll also often cover up 
uh, my weaknesses. Uh, I will also sometimes loathe myself for those weaknesses. But then it gets even darker. Go back to the list, verse two. If I prefer myself above everything, will I be abusive? Will I be disobedient? Will I be heartless? Will I be brutal? And this is where it's easy to say, well, the Apostle Paul, you're getting a little carried away with yourself. Um, well, hang on, not so fast. Consider who's writing this list. The Apostle Paul is a great apostle, but he's not talking theoretically. He has experience from the inside. Do you remember the second reading? The second reading is about how what happened to Paul when he met Jesus Christ. Before Paul met Jesus, he went by the name Saul. And he was brutal and abusive and all the rest of this list. He talks about it in that second reading. He rounded up Christians and he was complicit in killing them. Now why? Why did he do that? Well, according to Paul, he preferred himself over everything else. That made him then prefer his tribe, the particular religious tribe that he was part of. And you, you know that tribe, tribalism, is just collectivized preference of self. And because he loved his tribe, himself, and therefore his tribe, he hated whatever he found a threat to him and his tribe. And therefore he lashed out in brutality that he thought he could justify. Now, I pause here. We are often today shocked by our tribalisms. Are we not? You say, I'm not a tribalist. Okay, but come on. We're, we swim in a sea. And we're shocked and we're surprised by hatred. And it seems to me that very often we don't know where it comes from. And I'll just throw this out and won't make anything of it. But let me just ask a question. Do you, do you think our hatred and our tribalism could have anything to do with our addiction to self-interest? Okay, so evil's heart, argues Paul, is rooted in a preference for self over against everything else. But you also have to recognize its disguise. Look at verse 5. It has, Paul says, the appearance of godliness, but it denies its power. Okay, what he's saying here is that evil regularly hides itself, disguises itself in religion. And I hope, Emmanuel, that that doesn't surprise us. Um, uh, Christianity of all religions should be least surprised when religion disguises evil. Jesus... Who was Jesus killed by? Um, both the state and also the religious establishment, right? Uh, the apostle Paul was very, very religious as he was a predator against Christians. Of all religions, Christianity should be least surprised, least shocked to find evil cloaking itself in religion. And therefore I say, Emmanuel, do not be surprised by it. Keep your eyes wide open in the midst of it. Well, how do we do that? How do we recognize evil when it is cloaked in religion? Well, look back at verse 5. It says, they have the appearance of godliness, 
But, very importantly, they deny the power. That's key. Outward religion without inward transformation. Outward appearance without inward power. Think about Saul before he met Christ. Um, Saul was very religious, right? He had the appearance of godliness. No one was more religious than Saul was. He was super strict. What was wrong? What was missing? Well, his religion, for all its elaborate nature, it lacked power to change its heart. It couldn't access his heart. His religion lacked the power to transform his deep preference for self. It couldn't transform him. It could just sort of restrain him on the outside, but it couldn't access the depths of who he was. In fact, it was a little bit worse than that. Because not only did Saul's religion uh, fail to change its heart, it actually compounded the problem within his heart. So think about it. Saul preferred himself overall. He didn't think he did, but he did. And therefore, the more he performed his religion, the more he thought highly of himself. The more he thought highly of himself, the more arrogant and proud he became. The more proud and arrogant he became, the more tribal he became. The more tribal he became, the more brutal he became. And on it went until he was watching Stephen get stoned to death and giving his approval. See, his religion didn't change his heart. It ended up compounding his selfishness, and it compounded his evil. What I'm trying to say there is that religion, without the transformation of the heart, is an ally of evil. But now we need to slow down, because it's also part of its appeal. Look back at verse 6. So we've got these pseudo-Christians who are apparently targeting a group of women. They might have been the women who were hosting the churches in their homes. We're not sure. They were targeting a group of women in Timothy's church. And these pseudo-Christians um, talked a good talk, and they targeted people who enjoyed theological discussion but never got around to actually getting accurate and discerning in their understanding of the faith. So they were vulnerable, partially because they weren't thinking clearly. But then, also, these pseudo-Christians, they appealed to, do you see the word passions there? We talked about this last week. Um, in 2 Timothy, passions are immature desires that are selfish, short-sighted, and deceptive. So what's happening is these false teachers are offering a religion that does not require the transformation of desires. Instead, this religion comes in and it affirms the desires. And that's part of why it's so appealing. Because false religion always comes to us and says, listen, um, God is fine with you preferring yourself. Um, those desires, they are a reliable guide for life. Follow them. In fact, don't try to change them. It's, it might be unhealthy even to try to address those deep desires. Follow them. And you can see the appeal, can't you? The problem is... It's, it's a magic show. It's smoke and mirrors. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres uh, opposed uh, Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. They're men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Okay, do you know, ever heard of Janus and Jambres? No? Come on. Um, they, they were magicians in Pharaoh's court. 
And uh, their job was to mimic the miracles of Moses. So Moses came in, did a miracle, plagues and so forth. And then these folks were supposed to come and, and like do the same thing and say, hey, we can play that game. But the problem was, um, it was just smoke and mirrors compared to the power of God. And they were appealing for like a small amount of time. Um, but then it all fell apart. You can read Exodus about that. Emmanuel. Don't go in for the smoke and mirrors. Do you notice verse 1, Paul says that in the last days, there's going to be these times of difficulty because these weird teachers are going to arise. When he says in the last days, he's not talking about some distant future. In the New Testament, the last days begin with Jesus' resurrection. And all through the last 2,000 years, all through the history of the church, this pseudo-Christianity has crept in to the church all through its life. The greatest threat to the church is not from the culture outside. It is from the inside. And I say that, friends, because we have to understand that the threat of evil is very close to us. And it's closer than we imagine because it's in our own hearts. And so the question is, how do we resist evil? Don't look for evil just out there. It's so easy to do that. And that is usually a diversionary tactic. Look for it in here. My selfish desires that are short-sighted and deceptive, they often hide behind my best religious performance. And they hide behind my best religious performance, whispering in my ear, you're fine, Jim. You're fine as you are. Don't, no, don't, you don't have to worry about that issue that the Holy Spirit started addressing. You don't have to worry about that. It's fine. You don't need to change. It's probably unhealthy to try. That's where the danger lies. So. How do we resist it? We've got to anticipate evil, avoid it, resist it. How do we do it? And how do we do it when actually the evil is enmeshed within our own hearts? Okay, um, I've got bad news and good news. Okay, I'll start with the bad news. Bad news is you can't resist it. I mean, you can, but you can't defeat it. Um, we can't change our own hearts. Um, we can't undo our preference for self. We can sometimes restrain it, we can sometimes limit it, but it's always popping up. We can't beat the evil within our own hearts. And that's actually part of, again, of the appeal of false religion. Pseudo-Christianity is always more realistic than real Christianity. Pseudo-Christianity doesn't require the miraculous. It, it, it only requires what's possible. But real Christianity demands the impossible. The bad news is we can't pull it off. But then the good news, what's the good news? <clears throat> the good news is Jesus can defeat evil because Jesus has defeated evil and Jesus promises that he will defeat evil. Watch how he did it in Paul. So, Jesus, in the second reading, he meets Saul, who will become Paul. He meets Saul on the road to Damascus. And in a moment, he overturned Saul's false religion. And he did it in three ways. He challenged Saul. He unmasked Saul. And thirdly, he transformed him. 
First, he challenged Saul. So Saul is on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest some Christians. Um, and he's sincere. You must understand he's sincere in his religion at this point. But then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up, stands in front of him, and does the opposite of affirm him. Je Jesus says, Saul, what are you doing? More specifically, why are you persecuting me? Which is a funny thing to say because, of course, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. At least he didn't think he was. He thought Jesus was dead. Um, he, what, he, he was persecuting Jesus' people. Uh, but we find out that um, what you do to Jesus' people, Jesus takes personally. So, Jesus looks at Saul and he says, stop it. Let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever been challenged by Jesus? And let me try to say this as gently as I can. Well, it's not very gentle. If you haven't been challenged by Jesus, you don't know him yet. He challenges us in our sin. But then secondly, he unmasks us. And this gets even more uncomfortable. So when Saul meets Jesus, he, all of a sudden Jesus, uh, Saul realizes that Jesus isn't fooled by him. Everybody else was, but Jesus isn't fooled by him. And it seems like in, a, in an instant, as soon as he saw that Jesus was no longer fooled by Saul's religion, all of a sudden Saul was no longer fooled by his own religion. Because, of course, Saul had been fooled. Saul didn't think he was evil. Saul didn't think he preferred himself. But as, when he meets Jesus, all of a sudden he sees himself. That's always fundamental. Meet Jesus Christ and you will see yourself for the first time. And Jesus unmasks Saul's delusions of grandeur. Very often when Jesus does that in us, we find out that our best religious performance is just self-preference singing hymns. And Jesus' ministry of unmasking us, that's a normal part of Christian experience. And it's painful. Like, we, we want to hide, don't we? And when he, when he actually unmasks us, it's like, it's terrible, okay? Let's face it. But desire it. Seek it. Why? Because of what comes next. Jesus challenges us, unmasks us, and then transforms us. Pseudo-religion, remember, always puts outward appearance before inward power. Jesus turns that around. So that inward power and transformation is ahead of outward appearance. So that Jesus reaches into our hearts and he finds our self-preference that we can never touch and we can never solve. He finds it, he rips it out, and he replaces it with a preference for him. Love Jesus Christ and you will begin to love what Jesus loves. What does Jesus love? Even his enemies. If he loves his enemies, then you will find yourself, your capacity to love will expand and expand and expand. Look how it happened for Saul. Um, Jesus meets Saul, right? And in that moment, Saul is busy hating Jesus. What changes? What's remarkable to me is that the change is very... Jesus simply shows Saul Jesus. Do you see that? There's not even like a big conversation. There's a little conversation, but Jesus appears shining like the sun. Jesus appears in all of the glory and the power and the beauty of God. And apparently, Saul was so captivated by Jesus that maybe for the first time in his life, he actually forgot himself. Oh, the freedom 
of being, for, being able to forget ourselves for a moment. And he realized that Saul's religion had always been self-serving. He hadn't really been serving God. He had been a mercenary for God. He'd been serving himself. But then he looks into the face of Jesus Christ, and he sees three things at the same time. He sees infinite love because he sees his enemy who has given his life for him. Infinite love combined with infinite authority. Do you notice how Jesus doesn't, like, negotiate? He doesn't even persuade. He commands. Saul, you're on my team now. Follow me. And then thirdly, put those two things together, infinite love with infinite authority, Paul saw the one person who's worthy of his total allegiance. And from that moment on, I mean, he struggled. Of course he did. But it was a turning point where he began to live not for himself, but for Christ and for other people. And as that happened, his tribalism collapsed, and his self-preservation collapsed, his self-defensiveness collapsed, his brutality collapsed, and he spent the rest of his lives telling his national enemies, the Gentiles mainly, about Jesus Christ who loved them and could transform them. And when he's writing this letter to Timothy, he's sitting in a jail, awaiting his own death. He is by this point totally free from living for himself. He's not, he doesn't need to preserve his own life because he now he knows he belongs to the one who has defeated death and all evil. This man is in jail, but he's freer than ever. That's real religion. That's the religion of Jesus. That's the religion we pursue, friends. So Emmanuel, do not be gullible about evil. Look at it face to face in your own heart. Don't just look at it out there. And when you see it out there, ask yourself, is it in here? Anticipate it. But how? By eventually looking away from the evil within your own heart. Don't just try to suppress it because it won't work. Look away from your own heart and look at the face of Jesus Christ. See him giving his life for you upon the cross. That is perfect love. See his power. Hear his word calling you by name saying, no longer for yourself, but follow me. And you will find that the Holy Spirit will reach down into your soul and do that thing in your heart that your heart right now is telling you will never happen. Your heart wants to say, come on, be realistic. I'm not going to change. And the Holy Spirit will come into your life and do what it is that you can never do for yourself. He will take your self-preservation and your allegiance to yourself, and he will break it open so that you live for Christ. And there, in a relationship with Jesus Christ that is growing and deepening in love and under the authority of Christ, you will find yourself with a security and a peace and a serenity and a freedom. And don't imagine that you'll stop loving yourself, but your love for yourself will be transformed because you will love yourself as Christ loves you. A love of self that is freed from self for Christ, his cause, and for others. That's what we pursue. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ.
If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.